Welcome to episode one of my new podcast, Why Didn't Anyone Tell Me This? In this episode called This Is Me, I'm going to tell you who I am and why I've made this podcast. So my name's Joyce Harper and I'm Professor of Reproductive Science at the Institute for Women's Health at University College London. And I've been working in the fields of fertility and reproductive health for over 30 years. I am author of a book called Your Fertile Years, which was published in 2021 by Sheldon Press. And in my podcast, I'm going to tell you how I came about writing this book. I am also a researcher and an educator in all aspects of reproductive health. So the aim of this podcast is to teach you about health education with an emphasis on reproductive health. We do not cover these topics at school in any depth and we do not learn about them later on. So with my guests, we want you to give you the tools to empower you to live a healthy, happy and fulfilled life. As my mother would always say, good health and happiness. And on the way, we are going to debunk some of the many myths that we have around our health. So we will be discussing a wide range of topics such as nutrition, exercise, sleep, mental health, happiness, cancer, and also lots of reproductive health issues such as pregnancy, fertility, miscarriage, fertility treatment, and the menopause. Now, I am a cold water swimmer, so expect a few talks about cold water swimming. Now, language is a very sensitive topic. We want to be sure we get it right. So we will hopefully be inclusive to all genders and we will certainly be discussing issues specific to trans and non-binary individuals. When we use the word man and woman in our podcast, we, in most cases, will mean those who are assigned that gender at birth. So while it may not always be possible to phrase messages in such a way that everyone feels included, language inclusivity will be aimed for, and we certainly do not want to cause offence. So let me tell you about the first eight episodes. I'm so thrilled that so far everyone I've invited has agreed, and I've picked some of the people that I've met through my life who are just so interesting and have really important messages to share with you. So this is episode one. This is me. Episode two is with Jessica Hepburn. Jessica's led an amazing life. She's written two books called 21 Miles and In the Pursuit of Happiness. And she'll be talking about those books for sure. But her her title of her podcast is Turning Life into an Adventure. Episode three is with Dr. Anis Mukherjee. She is the go-to person about the menopause and her latest book, is called The Complete Guide to the Menopause, and she's going to tell you your essential menopause toolkit. Episode four is with Hannah Vaughan-Jones. She's going to tell us about finding your identity. Episode five is with Jo Mosley. She is a paddleboarder and has got a latest book out now called Stand Up Paddleboarding in Great Britain. I am new to paddleboarding. I started last year, so I'm looking forward to digging into that book. She's going to tell us about the joy of life post-menopause. Then Karen Newby, who's a nutritionist, is going to talk about the natural menopause method, which is also the title of her latest book. 
Then we have episode seven with Dr. Heather Macy. She is a cold water swimmer who I'm doing some research with. She is going to talk to us about a natural dip into nature, swimming outdoors. And finally, episode eight is with Dr. Shima Tarak. She is going to talk to us about mothering against odds, surviving infertility, baby loss and postnatal depression. Now, apologies that the first speakers are all are all women. I am definitely going to invite. I have invited some men. I'm just waiting to hear back from them. And I'm looking forward to letting you know who they are. And I want to stress we will be covering men's issues and a lot of the health issues are going to be relevant to men and women. So I'm going to ask my podcast guests some specific questions about their books and their life and their journey. But what I'm going to ask all of them is to talk either about their work or about their journey. And some of those are intertwined, such as mine. I'm going to ask them if they've ever heard people say, why didn't anyone tell me this? And what did they ask? And what are their main health messages that they would like to tell the public? And to finish off, we're going to get even more personal. I'm going to ask them what motivates them, what makes them happy and where's their happy place? And then what advice they would give to their younger self. So in today's podcast, I'm going to pretend that someone's interviewing me and I'm going to ask myself those questions and let you know what I would answer. We're very happy if we have time to take any questions from the public. If you've got questions for any of our speakers, please send them in in advance. I am aiming for the podcast to be about 30 minutes, but I think my podcast today is about 40. Um, I've listened to some hour long podcasts and they do get it gets very tiring to listen to someone for an hour. Now, I am recording audio and visuals for this podcast. So you will find this podcast on YouTube, but also find it on all the normal podcast channels such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts. And you'll also be able to access it from my website, www.joyceharper.com. And I'm very thankful to be making this podcast in collaboration with UCL Minds, and it will be available on their sites as well. So let me explain to you why I set up the podcast. And I want to start with telling you about my career and also my fertility journey. So I've always wanted to be a scientist. Back when I was about 10 years old, I can remember sitting in my house or sitting in bed normally and trying to figure out how all the world was created. How how was grass made? How was the moon made? Why is it there? And how did our body work? So I was really inquisitive about this. When I was about 13, I was very lucky. My very normal state high school took us on a trip to a lab. And in the lab, I was just overawed with everything. I thought, I want to work here. So I asked one of the women working there, and I really wish I knew who it was. I would love to thank her. I said, what do I need to do to work here? And she said, you need to get a BSc and a PhD. Now, at our school, and since none of my immediate family have been to university, I really wasn't even sure what they were, especially a PhD. But I was determined. I was on a mission, age 13, to get my PhD and become a scientist. So I finished my PhD in 1987, and um, it wasn't related to fertility at all. In 1987, it had only been nine years since the birth of Louise Brown, the world's first test tube baby. 
And I was flipping through New Scientist, which is how we used to look for jobs in those days. And in the back, I found a job for a clinical embryologist. Now, at that time, to be honest, I didn't even know what a clinical embryologist was. And I certainly did not know much about fertility or fertility treatment. But before I knew it, I was a clinical embryologist trainee and I was learning a lot about fertility. Now, at that time, we were in our mid-20s and my friends were trying not to get pregnant. And when I told them about what I was learning, I was really aware that they didn't understand or didn't know, had never been taught about the things that I'd been learning in my new job. And I thought, wow, we have a big gap in our education here and we really need to fill it. So I thought, let's write a book. Now, the only book around at that time was called Our Body Ourselves, which is a lovely book, but I wanted it to cover a wider area of topics and there were certain things that I wanted to re rewrite. So I started writing the book. I wrote about 40,000 words back in the 80s, um, but I wasn't really qualified at that time. I really didn't know enough about this field. And I spent the next 20 years working in the laboratory doing lots of research, as I had hoped when I was 13. And decades disappear. And the next thing, um, I came back to the book um, around about 2015, which I'll come back to in a minute. So my first job was working as a clinical embryologist with Professor Ian Craft. We were working in, well, Professor Ian Craft ran the busiest, one of the busiest IVF units in the UK at that time. And we unfortunately... Um, he unfortunately passed away a few years ago and I was really privileged at the end of his life to spend a few years regularly going to the theatre and the opera with him. And it's, it's a big loss that he's gone now. We used to speak every few days. So I next thing I knew, I was um, just under 30. I had an office and a lab in Harley Street. And then one day Ian said to me, I want you to become manager of the clinic. And I sat back and thought, is that what I want to do at 29? Do I want to manage a clinic? No, I want to, I want to be in university. I want to do research and I want to teach. So that gave me the push to actually leave the clinical embryology field. And in 1992, I started working with Robert Winston and it was a sidestep because I was working on pre-implantation genetic testing, which is where we take embryos generated from IVF and we test them for specific diseases to help people who are at risk of transmitting these diseases to their children. And I have written a couple of books on these. Um, those watching the video, they should be behind me somewhere on the bookcase. And my passion had always been to teach. So I started working at University College London in the late 90s. And in 1996, we set up the first MSc programme that I was involved with, um, with Joy Delhanty and Charles Rodek. And we're now part of the Institute for Women's Health. And I was Director of Education for about 25 years and helped set up many other MSc programmes. And we now have over 150 students every year going through our institute. And it's been an absolute pleasure to teach them and watch their careers grow over this time. I absolutely love teaching. So let's jump forward now to 2015. And we've got to the stage where my friends have started to go through the menopause. 
And I've realised, oh, I should have written that book. <laughs> we still have no good education in women's health or reproductive health. Um, remember, that was 2015. So it was eight years ago. Things have improved in recent years, for sure. But back then, no one was talking about the menopause. No one talked about fertility. So I started by setting up a website called globalwomenconnected.com and you will find many of my blogs there. I'm going to try in 2023 to do one every week or a couple of weeks um, and keep you updated with um, certain topics. So as well as setting up Global Women Connected, I thought it's time to write this book. So I started doing lots of reading and lots of writing. And I, I again wanted to write the book for women's health from birth to death, but publishers like things quite specific. So they asked me just to write about the fertile years. So that's where my book came in, Your Fertile Years, and it's published last year. Now, at that time as well, in 2016, I was part of the British Fertility Society. And I started talking to Adam Balin about fertility education and we both said, wow, we should have been doing this a long time ago. So with Jackie Boven, we set up the UK Fertility Education Initiative to try and help teach the public, school children, teachers, health professionals, all about fertility education. And I think at conferences, so much of the good work happens in the bar and over lunch. And I was at a preconception health conference many years ago with my dear friend, Karen Hammerberg from Australia. And over a glass of wine, we started talking about fertility education. And we were aware that there are so many excellent people doing research on this globally. We've got great work happening in Australia, led by Karen and others. Brilliant work in Portugal, Denmark, France, Belgium. There's so many good researchers going um, into this area. So we thought, let's gather them all together. And I'm very much a people person. I like gathering lots of people together who are going to work on a specific project. So we formed the International Fertility Education Initiative. And we've been um, doing lots of work in the last couple of years to see how we can roll this out globally. And 2023 is going to be the year that we produce lots of educational resources. So we have already drafted some information leaflets to the public on various topics of reproductive health, and we are going to produce other resources for them. And something I'm very excited about that I'm going to tell you about now is that I've been doing a lot of work with schools and how we should educate school children about fertility and reproductive health. And we now have a teaching guide and a PowerPoint that's going to be offered for free. And I've already sent it out to many teachers so that they have a resource that they can um, use to teach this in schools. So it's very exciting. And everything we do is free. And we are part of the European Society for Human Reproduction and Embryology, or ESHRA for short. So our website is www.eshrse. Um, at uh, sorry, <laughs> eshra.eu slash IFEI for International Fertility Education Initiative. All of this will be in the uh, notes and on my website. So I want to now tell you a little bit about my research. 
My recent research has been to look into the public's knowledge, understanding and attitudes towards reproductive health and to see how we can improve it and not have anybody say, why didn't anyone tell me this? So I've been doing a lot of work on IVF add-ons and IVF add-ons are procedures that are trying mostly to improve the success of an IVF cycle and their extra treatments that are added on to the IVF cycle. And we've done lots of research about it. I won't talk about it now. I've blogged about it and done videos and many, many talks. Um, but basically, I think it's really important that we practice evidence-based medicine. And we have to do our patients justice and give them valid treatments. I've also done some very exciting work in the femtech space and femtech is technology that helps teach about women's health and I've done a lot of work on period trackers and um, fertility trackers and I, I want to add that all of my recent research it, I, I publish it in scientific journals but I try to make it as accessible as possible so the public can understand it and also they're almost all freely available. So you can go to my website and find out information about my publications and then you should be able to have access to them. And then I've been doing some research in a few countries to look at attitudes to having children of men, women and teenagers and of course the menopause. So this is a topic that I've only started doing research on for about four years. Um, I've done several surveys to ask women to tell us how they're feeling about their menopause. And again, those papers are open access. And cold water swimming. So, of course, our hobbies sometimes intrude onto our um, work life. And cold water swimming certainly has for me. We're doing a number of different studies. But one I want to tell you about is we've done a survey asking women that swim whether they feel it's helped their menstrual and menopause symptoms. And we're going to be doing more studies in the future. So it's very exciting. We haven't published that work yet. We're just writing it up. So I want to tell you about the work I've been doing with schools. So about five years ago, I went into my local school with a list of topics that I thought should be covered for teenagers. And she told me, well, you're not going to be very happy. We don't cover very many of them. Yes, schools cover puberty, sexually transmitted infections and contraception. So they are pretty good at teaching teenagers how not to get pregnant. But they don't discuss fertility, preconception health, polycystic ovarian syndrome, endometriosis, miscarriage, menopause or any of those topics. And so we ran a school survey asking teenagers. It's been done in the UK, Belgium and Greece. And we asked them to tell us what topics they have learned about and how they felt about what they've been learning. And we're just preparing this research for publication now. But basically, less than 5% had learned anything about polycystic ovarian syndrome or endometriosis when both of these disorders affect one in 10 women. And I've had girls come up to me at the end and tell me, oh, I think I've got that. So we've also done work looking more in the UK curriculum and this work has been published and we've made suggestions about how it can be improved. And I've been lucky enough to go into schools around England and give talks that started off being called fertility education. 
But in most people's minds, fertility is just about having babies. So I've renamed it now reproductive health education. And this includes information for people, whether they want children or not. So, for example, if they're having a menstrual cycle, there's important information about their reproductive health. They will at some point, uh, women at some point will go through the menopause. So there's important topics, whether they want children or not. So with this information, this all of this has helped develop the teacher's lesson plan that we've done along with some members of the International Fertility Education Initiative. So we're really looking forward to this now being taught in schools. So I wanted to give you a little summary of the research I'm doing this year. So I've done a lot of surveys, which are a little bit remote and we don't really have a conversation. It's very one way. We can ask thousands of people their views, but we don't really get deep into it. So this year is all about talking to people. So I'm running lots of focus groups and one of the projects is going to be focus groups to ask people who have periods how they are feeling about it and if these periods are affecting their well-being. So we're going to be doing this in schools because my work in schools has shown that so many of the young girls I spoke to said that their periods were really affecting their lives. So when I give a talk, I use a anonymous online platform where I can ask the audience some questions and they can write free text response. And the response the girls told me about their periods was really heartbreaking. I've, I've been in tears every time I've asked them. There's one girl told me she's had a period for seven months. Um, lots of girls telling me very painful. They don't want to get out of bed. They flood all sorts of really terrible things. So we really need to do more on periods with young girls, but but this research will extend to young adults, adults, and also perimenopausal women. So many of my friends have told me how their periods have really taken over their life at the perimenopause stage. They become very long, very heavy, very painful. And so we are doing the focus groups with perimenopausal women this year. We're also going to do some work on period trackers, and we're doing this with the trans men and non-binary individuals who are still having periods. And we're going to ask them how it is having their period and if they use a period tracker app and is it this app really fit for them? Is it fit for purpose? So that's going to be a really interesting survey. And with all of this work, we want to produce information, education and support for people to improve the quality of their life. Now, I'm really looking forward to this. This is going to be doing some focus groups on postmenopausal women. We have created a very negative narrative about the menopause in the UK. And we tell people about all the doom and gloom of going through the perimenopause and those perimenopause symptoms. So the perimenopause is the time before your period stop when many women have symptoms. But a woman is menopausal when she has been for one year without having a period. And as soon as she realizes she's been for one year, she's actually postmenopausal. So we want to do focus groups with postmenopausal women and see how they're feeling about their life. I know from experience that many women feel this is a fabulous time of their life. They're finally free from their hormones, free from their menstrual cycle, contraception, periods. It can be a wonderful, wonderful time when you've ticked off many of the things you had on your to-do list 
And now you can be you, you can find who you really are. It's such an amazing time. So many of my guests on my podcast will be adventurers at this time of their life. And they're going to hopefully motivate more women to rediscover what will make them happy. So I'm really excited about doing these interviews, even more so because this is going to be the topic of my next book, which I'll come back to in a moment. So when we set up the Fertility Education Initiative, we prepared, we, we made a poster about fertility education. And some of my colleagues on the international group have tested this poster to see what people think about it. But I have not done any research on this myself. And since I started the poster, I thought I'd better do that. So in 2023, we're going to do some focus groups with young adults, we're going to give them the poster and ask them how they feel about the information that is contained there. So I'm going to now tell you about my journey. Now, my plan had always been to have a family when I was about 30 and I was in a long term relationship. And when I was about 27, I brought up the topic of children, but my partner was not ready to have children. And I've met many women who have been in this situation. It's it's really difficult. What do you do? Do you carry on and not have children? Um, do you carry on and hope that they might change their mind and have children later? Or do you end it and try and find someone who will have children with you? So it, it's really difficult. Um, I think I subconsciously sabotaged the relationship and we split when I was 32. So I am very aware that female fertility declines in our mid thirties, significantly so for most women around the age of 35. So here I was 32 and single. So I did something really stupid. I went out with someone who was much, much younger than me and not ready to have children at all. I don't know why I did that. Um, but I did. And uh, at age 35, I found myself single again. And I have a, a cartoon that I sometimes use on my slides of a woman with a hand and head in her hands and saying, oh, my God, I forgot to have children. And I, I really almost felt like that. I got totally stressed about what I'd be, what had I been doing? I really want to have a family. And so I was really lucky at 35 to meet somebody somebody who on the first date when I said I want to have children totally agreed with me and we never used contraception but nothing happened so I absolutely know what it feels like to have that period come again and again and again every month and to start feeling like you are a failure and you can't get pregnant your body's not doing what it should be doing it should be getting pregnant so um I, I in my career have helped thousands of people have children and I know that it's a very, very hard journey to go through. So I really became very sad and depressed when I realized that I had to now embark on this journey. And I, I cried a lot. I cried a lot in front of colleagues and it was a really difficult time. So I started the fertility tests. I did it quickly. I did it when I was 35. And then I started lots of different types of treatment. And I was really, really lucky at age 39 to have my first child. And then I had frozen embryos. And at age 42, I had my twins. So I have been so blessed to have three wonderful boys born through IVF. 
and I, I really do appreciate now what it's like to be on the other side of the table. And it's such a hard journey. I knew it was going to be hard, but it was much, much harder than I had ever anticipated. It's very traumatic. It's still trauma that is with me now. And I really would not wish this on anybody. So with the work with our fertility education initiatives, we want to hopefully prevent some people ending up in the fertility clinic and giving them information that will hopefully help them obtain a pregnancy naturally. So um, it's wonderful. I've got my three wonderful children, but I have been a single mum for about 10 years, which has been a difficult journey. And I know some of my guests are single parents, and I'm sure we're going to discuss that in more detail in some of the podcasts. So <clears throat> let's look at the question, why didn't anyone tell me this? When do I most often hear people say that? Well, <clears throat> for me, the answer is not short. I have heard people say this many times. So I'm just going to do a whistle stop tour through some of the key points that I want to make so that I don't hear anyone say that anymore. And I must stress that these are not women's issues. Reproductive health, fertility health are not women's issues. They are men's issues as well. And everybody needs to understand them. And as I said, we will be having some men guests on my podcast to talk more specifically about male issues and male fertility and infertility. So one really key point is we are all individuals. So even though I'm going to say some of this information, some of it won't apply to certain people. We are not one size fits all. We need to give people the information and they need to take from it what they need for their specific circumstance. So everything I am covering now is in my book in much more detail. So let's first talk about the menstrual cycle. When are we ever taught really anything useful about the menstrual cycle? And what I want people to know is there's two key events. There's our period and there's ovulation, which is the time when you can get pregnant. So with our periods, as I've said, so many women are suffering in silence. Um, it's really not acceptable. We need to teach people what is normal and if and what's normal for one person won't be normal for the next. <clears throat> and we need to make sure that if any of their period issues are affecting their life, their well-being, their quality of life, they need to seek medical help. And there are many treatments and lifestyle changes that they can make that will hopefully help them through this, these difficult times. No one should be suffering. And ovulation. So ovulation is the time when the woman can get pregnant. It's around about the middle of the cycle, but we've done some research about this that I, I won't go into now. Um, so if you're sexually active, you're either trying to get pregnant or trying not to get pregnant. So either way, it's important to understand your menstrual cycle and to know when you are ovulating and when the fertile window is and the chances are that you could get pregnant. So I won't go into any more detail than that. The next important point is fertility decline. And some of you will have heard of the biological clock and how female fertility declines with age, as I mentioned, but men's fertility also declines with age. It's not such a drastic effect as for women. Men can stay fertile their whole lives, but they do have a decrease in fertility, most men, and it will become harder for them to get their partner pregnant. There will be increase in things like miscarriage uh, if the man is older. 
But let's look at the women. So women, as I said, over age 35, our fertility really starts to go down. And this really is related to the menopause. After the menopause, we cannot have children naturally anymore. But actually that fertility decline starts about eight years, eight to 10 years before the menopause. So if every, everyone goes to the menopause at different ages, it's, it's huge variation. The average age women have been for a year with no period is 51. But that means a lot of women will be less than 51. So they'll be in their 40s. And then remember, they're losing their fertility about eight years before that. So some women will lose their fertility for sure in their 30s. So it's important for women to know this and to take allowance for that and make their own decision about what they want to do. So really important uh, information there. And we do see so many celebrities. There's one almost every week. There was one today, 48 year old, uh, showing off her lovely bump. This is very, very rare. It's very rare for somebody to get pregnant in their 40s at all. But late 40s or early 50s is really the exception to the rule. Now, the celebrities, it's up to them. It's their fertility journey. They don't have to tell everybody how they got pregnant. But chances are some are having very expensive fertility treatment and some are using a donor egg. And when we use a donor egg, we use this from a woman who is under 35 because of fertility decline. But if you are embarking on fertility treatment, I think we have this view in the public that it's easy. But as I said, it's not. It's an emotional roller coaster. And my research and my own experience is that most people stop having this treatment because of emotional reasons. They just find it too much. But also the finances is pretty close because it's so expensive in many countries. Some countries it's subsidized. In the UK, it's hardly subsidized, which is just not acceptable. And the next important point is miscarriage. So miscarriage happens in one in five pregnancies. So that's 20% of pregnancies. And people don't know that. They only normally learn it when they're having a miscarriage themselves. So they're going through this stress and wondering what's happening and why is this happening to them? And only then do they realize that actually this is quite a common occurrence. And then we come on to the menopause. So my research has shown that so many women do not know, did not know about their menopause, menopause symptoms, what was happening to them at all until they started going through it. And for some, they went for many years with symptoms, wondering what was happening and then realized, oh, it's the very menopause, especially as we have this narrative that, oh, you go through the menopause in your 50s. So if you're late 30s or early 40s, you think, well, it can't be the menopause. I'm too young. You're never too young. So it is a difficult time, the perimenopause. But I think it's important to let everyone know. I think if they know that these are menopause symptoms, they'll realize sooner and be able to make treatments or lifestyle changes accordingly. And they will understand what's happening to them rather than not knowing. So. Postmenopause, as well as doing the focus groups, this is the topic of my next book. I am meeting all these amazing people who are doing fabulous things postmenopause. My life has been unbelievable since I've been postmenopause. So I'm going to interview lots of women over the next few years and ask them to tell me about their life, tell me about their sex life, 
what they do, their work, their hobbies, their friendships, their community. And um, I really want this to be a motivating book that will help women understand that there is light at the end of the tunnel after the perimenopause. So all of these topics are really important. And last year I set up Reproductive Health at Work, where my team goes into companies and helps teach them about all of these things I've just spoken to you about and much more. So we sometimes give talks just about uh, reproductive health in general, from the menstrual cycle to the menopause. But about half the time I'm asked just to speak about the menopause. Um, So it's really important for everybody around to understand issues that anyone might be going through that affects their reproductive health. So what motivates me? Well, I have too much energy, probably too much energy. At 60, as I am now, when you'll be hearing this podcast, um, I think it's more unusual um, and people think it's a superpower. Um, When I was younger and everyone had more energy, um, I think I was a bit annoying. Um, I can't sit very still. I hate being bored. And lockdown really showed me that I don't want to retire. I love working. I don't like doing nothing. And I, as you'll hear in a minute, I do a lot socially. Um, I have a very busy life outside work. But um, what I've done is channeled my energy into my work. And being an academic, one thing is we can really do lots of things that lots of different things and we can pick and choose what we want to do more of. So, for example, I love going to conferences. I'm a people person. I love the buzz of giving a talk and then all the networking events. I, I absolutely love it. Hated it in lockdown when we couldn't go. I love teaching my students. I love doing my research. I love writing. Um, I love everything I do. I love love writing books. Um, So I know that lots of people do not feel the same as me about their work. And one thing I want to do with my next book is see how we can motivate people, especially women in the twilight years of their life, shall we say? I don't really like that term. But um, it's the time to make sure you're doing something that really makes you happy. Um, And I'm writing a blog this week about happiness and how to be happy. And I've done I've done a positive psychology course um, with the wonderful Marion Actar. And um, it's there's so there's I think there's ways that people who are not happy can be happy. But it's not just about work, for sure. It's about our social life, too. So what makes me happy? Well, I have many, many things that make me happy. My wonderful kids make me really, really happy. Lockdown for us was amazing to just spend quality time together we knew we had no choice we knuckled down and I I just love it I love our dinner times every evening when we sit and talk about everything what they're studying what I've been doing I I, they're amazing I really love dancing and the day I can't dance anymore uh, will be a really really tough day for me I love dancing I love music Um, I wish I could sing I can't sing but I wish I could I love exercising. I love all types of exercising. I love cold water swimming. I love paddle boarding, but I also really love my friendships. I have very, very long term friendships, which I don't necessarily see them all the time, but I really try and keep in contact. And I love my community. I love theatre. I love watching dance. I love reading. And I am not good at doing art at all. 
but without being good, you can really make some amazing pieces. And the best thing is enjoy the process of making them. So I've done lots with glass. I've done lots with uh, mosaics um, and uh, screen printing. And they come out, they look amazing. <laughs> I really, I can't draw. Um, but also I love nature. I love our wonderful, beautiful planet and what it offers us every day by just looking out the window at the wonderful nature around us. So what is my happy place? Well, my happy place, I have two. I have any beach anywhere in the world, especially at sunset and sunrise. And being a cold water swimmer, we've really utilised those two times of the day. And over the last few years, sometimes I get up very early and I drive down to my beach, which is over an hour away. Before about about 45 minutes before sunrises, I do a gentle run along the beach and the colours in the sky and the black sea is just the most amazing time. I I really it's, I can't describe how amazing it is. And then we jump in the sea just as the sun's coming up and seeing here comes the sun and it's just uh, pure, pure happiness. So the second happy place is dancing anywhere. Ideally in a field. I love a festival. I went to seven festivals last year and I'm going to lots this year. I just walk into a field, hear some tunes, start dancing and I have the biggest smile on my face. And I really love it that so many of the club promoters now are around my age and they have made day raves. So if you haven't heard of a day rave, um, instead of going to the club at 10 o'clock at night, you go to the club at midday <laughs> and you dance all afternoon and then you come out about 8 or 9 p.m. and get home and tucked up in bed at a reasonable time. I love a day rave. Can't say how much I put on a sparkly dress, get together with some friends and we just go dancing the afternoon away. Absolutely love it. So since lockdown as well, I've, I've really learned to enjoy my own company more. I never really spent much time doing things alone before, but I have been, I've now been going to uh, gigs and the theatre. I've even been to a club on my own. Um, even one night of one of the festivals, I went on my own. And I've always wanted to have a camper van, as so many people have, and so many of my swimming friends have camper vans. So this year I'm going to do it. I'm not going to wait anymore. I'm only going to buy a minivan or maybe an estate car that I can sleep in. And I want to have adventures this year. So we mustn't wait. We must do it now. Now, I, I run, run a women's group in my town. I've run it for about five or six years. We, we meet once a month. It's called the Purple Tent. Um, if you want to know more about it, go on globalwomenconnected.com and I've written some blogs about the purple tent and why it's called the purple tent. And this week we are going to be doing our vision boards. Actually tonight we're going to be doing our vision boards. And if you want to know more about vision boards, again, go to globalwomenconnected.com. Um, I think a vision board is a must. It makes you think about what you need to do to make yourself happy, what goals you want to set yourself for the coming year. So you'll spend a lot of time reflecting on your life and where you want it to go in the future, in the, in the next year. And then we do it as a group. We bring lots of magazines and some boards and we sit there and cut out lots of 
images and phrases and words that we find and we think of some more things doing it as a group we think of other things oh yes actually I want to go and do that I want to go and do that so we bounce some ideas off each other and we put it in our vision board and the important thing is we visit this regularly we don't put it away in the loft we put it somewhere on display and we look at it all the time to remind ourselves what we want to do to make us happy so finally the last question to myself is what is my advice to my younger self? So this is a tricky one and it's a little bit of a long answer, but I have been thinking about it a lot. Now, in my book, chapter three was about the four pillars of well-being, which are nutrition, exercise, sleep and our mental health. And it's been so brilliant recently to read so many other books by people who have also talked about the importance of these four pillars of well-being in our long-term health. So they are key throughout our entire life and for, for, for all aspects. And being 60 now, I realise more than ever how important these are. So I've been pretty good at balancing these four, but there are two exceptions. So I'm going to tell you the good bits first that I've managed, and then I'm going to come back to my two exceptions. So the first nutrition, I've I think I've done pretty well. I always cook my own food. I don't drink, I don't eat any junk junk food. I don't drink much alcohol. I even didn't when I was a teenager. Um, so I, I'm doing pretty well. And, and listening to Tim Spector, who um, is the guy at the moment to talk to about nutrition. And I was so privileged that he read through my sectional microbiome for my book. Um, he will tell you about what you need to do. And I, I agree with everything he said. Um, our, and our weight is important. Um, it's not, I'm not cared about what I look like, but our weight is important for our health. So having a healthy weight and having good nutrition, you know, we are what we eat. But I've got one exception to that. And I've always had a problem with my weight. I've really struggled with my weight my whole life. I've never been slim. Um, so I'll come back to that. That's my exception. The next is exercise. I a big tick for exercise. Um, I've always exercised, and um, when I was um, at, before I went to school, I did ballet and tap, and did lots of shows. Um, I was I'm a qualified aerobics teacher, which I used to teach in my twenties, and obviously now the cold water swimming. Um, so we're going to have lots of episodes about exercise and the importance. And again, if you go to Global Women, you'll find all the posts. I've written so many posts about the health benefits of exercise for cancer, dementia, heart disease. The, the list is huge. Um, and it's really important for women. And we don't exercise enough. We don't exercise as much as men. So um, I'm an ambassador, ambassador for This Girl Can, which is the UK scheme to help women and girls get exercising um and so I, I can't say that enough that's so important to exercise um I can even still do the splits it's my one of my party pieces if I've had too much wine um and yeah I I can keep going I keep up with the, with the youngsters um and I don't think I'd be able to do that if I hadn't exercised my whole life now next is sleep I think sleep's one of my superpowers. My friends always saying it is. I can sleep anywhere. I love a siesta. At the festivals I go to, I always have a siesta so I can keep going later. Sleep's really important. Again, you'll find some blogs about sleep on Global Women. And then finally, our mental health. 
So for me, I've been a very positive person who's rarely depressed, except when I went through fertility treatment and I'm really anxious. But I know that a growing number of people are experiencing mental health issues and it's something that really, really needs to be addressed. So again, I will get some wonderful people to talk about mental health on my podcast. So my two exceptions are, um, I mentioned weight and I link this directly to my sugar addiction. So to my younger self, sort your sugar addiction out sooner. Don't wait till you're in your 50s. So I have pretty much got it under control now. I've been working very hard on it over the last few years. I do sometimes have lapses because we've got this culture where we celebrate with cakes and sweets and chocolates. And sometimes I do buckle under, but I just, it it annoys me that we've, we've done this. Why do we celebrate with something that's so toxic? Sugar is really toxic. I cannot say that enough. There's more in my book about it and there's more on Global Women about it. It It's a health hazard. And Tim Spector talks a lot about our uh, sugar spikes and how we're all different. One person can eat a croissant and not have one and the next person does. Um, so his Zoe project, I think, is is really exciting and I can't wait to get on it. Um, so my advice to my younger self, sort it out sooner. My second exception is that I I am very manic. I, I'm too busy. I'm too talkative. I'm too full on, which really annoys some people. So my advice to my younger self would be to be more still and silent. And there is a lot of data out there supporting mindfulness, meditation and silent time for our long term health, reducing dementia and much, much more. I again started doing mindfulness um, meditation in my 50s. I should have done it when I was younger. So that's the end of the first episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. As always, I'm very open to comments and feedback. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you've got any questions for my wonderful guests, then please get in contact. I'm not sure how frequent the podcast will be. I think the minimum would be once a month, but I've got so many wonderful guests lined up. I'm too excited. So I think it might be more than that. So uh, every time I've recorded this, I seem to have got a bit longer. I think we're on 50 minutes now. So sorry I've been so long and so talkative, but I hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you.